Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hi, guys. Please make sure this week to sign up for our Patreon. It's patreon.com backslash shutupevan. It will grant you access to extended interviews with guests as well as bonus clips. On this week's episode, we'll go deep with Rich Jeswiak about what he calls the Jamila Jamil Jemergency, which involves the actress Jamila Jamil from The Good Place. We'll talk about what exactly that is, and trust me, you'll want to know, as well as get into a larger look at celebrity entertainment journalism writ large. This section of the interview is exclusive to our Patreon subscribers. So if you haven't already, go to patreon.com backslash shutupevan and sign up today. Love ya. On today's show, journalist Rich Jezwiak, a senior writer at Jezebel and advice columnist at Slate, whose work has been seen in the New York Times, the Washington Post, Time Magazine, and more. Jezwiak talks about receiving blowback to his criticism from rabid fandoms. How could I have upset you so much that you want me to die? That you want my existence to cease because I wrote that I don't like the new Madonna album? Are you kidding me? The dying art form of the celebrity magazine profile. How many cover stories from magazines that get published today with big stars contain nothing? Like you look at the quotes that they used and you're like... What quotes did you not use? The the shit I read amazes me. As somebody who was like 10 years old reading Rolling Stone and Spin and Details, you know? Just somebody who like kind of like worships this form. His love of divas like Mariah Carey. It's like watching sports or something, you know? Is she going to hit the notes? It's, It's like a tense experience when she gets on live television. And that is fun for me. And writing about sex. And more specifically, his sex life. I cannot think of my family when I write about sex. I have to pretend that, like, they're dead, that everybody's dead, and nobody will ever encounter the thousands of words at this point about, like, liking giving blowjobs, and here's what it's like to douche, and, like, all this stuff. God, it's so embarrassing that that's out there for my family, but I just have to push forward. Shut up, Evan. Hey guys, what's up? It's Evan Ross Katz, and you are listening to Shut Up Evan, a podcast about gay shit and internet culture. I'm Evan Ross Katz. I'm once again joined by my producer, Alden Peters. Hello. So obviously on today's show, we have Rich Joswiak. He has not ever explicitly worked in queer media, but much of his beat throughout his time in journalism has been LGBTQ plus centric stuff. And I was thinking about that because both you and I, I think, have similar backgrounds in that... We have done a lot of LGBTQ-centric work that is not at media organizations that are necessarily devoted to that kind of coverage. Um, So can you kind of give people a little bit of background in terms of the specific work that you've done professionally um, that sort of has bolstered our community? Sure. So I worked at the company that we shall not name, where we did a lot of drag race content in general. After that, I ended up at HuffPost, where the show that I worked on Between the Lines, as much as possible, I tried to pitch queer stories, or at least queer angles to stories. I also work independently in film, writing and directing and things like that. So I directed and produced a feature documentary called Coming Out um, that was released in 2015. It is in like an in-depth look at the coming out process over the span of years and how that affects a whole family. And then in 2018, I directed a short film, Femme, which is a comedy about a gay 20-something in New York who gets rejected by his hookup for being too femme. And he kind of goes on this hilarious journey of self-discovery and acceptance by way of a manic existential crisis. And a drag queen fairy godmother who's played by Aja from RuPaul's Drag Race. 
And then in addition to that, I have a feature screenplay about pre-Stonewall gay rights activism um, that's been circulating in some competitions, doing pretty well, um, and also have a fun little queer sci-fi project in the works as well. So even though I didn't work in queer media explicitly, queerness has been in all of the work that I do in any category. But you got your start in queer media, right? I did, yeah. So I was at New Now Next, which is Ah. Viacom, um, which owns like CBS and MTV and VH1. They have a bunch of websites. And New Now Next is actually the Logo Television Network's website, which is Viacom's LGBTQ plus network, which formerly had Drag Race. It still exists now. It doesn't have a lot of programming. No shade. All tea. But uh, I managed their website, and so they would write a lot of LGBTQ plus pieces that were both uh, reported out features, aggregated features, you name it. I think the great thing I got to do while I was there that I continued to try and do during my time at the place we do not mention is being an editor, I was able to hire LGBTQ plus writers, and I think that was the great thrill for me at sort of being able to work with these really talented people who I'd seen on the internet and be like, hey, I saw you tweet about this thing. Would you want to write about it for us and get paid to write it? And I can sort of work with you in sort of like shaping this idea and making something that you're really proud of. Um, So that's sort of my experience. I think every there's a lot of different LGBTQ media organizations. I think there's sort of a collective conscious you know, not monolithic, but uh, around them now is sort of being frustrating because of either the lack of expansiveness of what's being said. I know like Queer Tea just ran a piece um, on March 9th that the headline was, here's a radical idea. What if we treated Aaron Schock with kindness? And Aaron Schock is the disgraced ex-Republican congressman who recently came out, who has a voting record of voting very much so against LGBTQ people during his time in Congress. So that's one example. And then also the other big thing is they're radically underfunded. They often are seen as sort of the lowest priority on the totem pole of many of these larger organizations that own them. They're often run by cis hetero people. And when I mean run, I mean sort of like who's bankrolling these operations. So I think it's definitely a trying time for LGBTQ media. Um, But I think that there are a lot of LGBTQ plus creators that do amazing things. I can think of so many LGBTQ centric podcasts that like, are LGBTQ media organizations to me. So that leads us to our guest today, Rich Jaswiak. So I first encountered Rich's work when he was working at Gawker probably like a decade ago. And I remember reading his, I like remember this so distinctly, like being in my college dorm room, reading Rich's work and feeling so seen. I hear about this moment all the time from people about like the first time they saw something in media that made them feel seen. Um, I had seen myself in in media before that, but it was the voice was so, so much more like specific to my sensibilities, not just my gayness. And so I got his email, reached out to him, and we sort of formed this friendship that continues today. I think it's, I can really track Rich as being the writer that has had the greatest impact on my voice as a writer. And so it's really an honor to have this opportunity to chat with him all these years later in this context. Amazing. Let's get right into that interview. Rich Jezwiak is a writer for Jezebel, which builds itself as a supposedly feminist website. He is a columnist for Slate, addressing reader questions such as, my 13-year-old son wants me to buy him a sex toy, should I? He previously wrote for Gawker, what I would consider one of the most influential media outlets of its time. In his 2016 goodbye letter, after the site's closure was announced at the hands of wrestler Hulk Hogan and Silicon Valley investor Peter Thiel, Jezwiak wrote, we humans and our things come and go and so little is remembered. We know that Gawker will be remembered. There's a good chance its narrative will prove to be indelible as to be legend. He has written for the New York Times, the Washington Post, Time, GQ, and co-authored the 2012 book, Pot Psychology's How to Be, Lowbrow Advice from High People. He is an expert on subjects ranging from sex to Latoya Jackson. I can think of no writer who has more profoundly impacted my voice as a writer. He is humble, he is thoughtful, he is kind, he is often high. He is my friend, he is Rich Jezwiak. I'm just going to transcribe that. I'm so bad at writing bios, you know, (laughs) but you just helped me out there, so. Well, it was fun going back and and looking at some of these articles, and then I I would write down one outlet, and then I would remember, I was like, oh yeah, he wrote that piece for GQ that one time, and this is only the best stuff, because there's even more. Um... (laughs) 
originally this was going to be like my loosest interview. Right. I was like, oh, Rich is an old friend. I was like, we can just kick it. Yeah. And then yesterday I started looking back at some of your old articles yeah. um, more for fun. Right. It all sort of started uh, flowing back to me how much I love your work. No, like, thank you for saying that. I'm glad that reading my old articles didn't cause you to disinvite me because no. I may have <laughs> disinvited myself. I don't, I don't, you know, I don't know what those say, basically. Well, <laughs> we'll get into it. Uh, now, in doing that research, I encountered, uh, speaking of bios, a bio of yours on everypedia.com. Okay. God. So in five, I, didn't, I didn't write that. No, no, no. You, uh, you didn't. Uh, in five sentences only, it reads, uh, Jeswiak grew up in South New Jersey. He knew he was gay from age five, but com- came out at age 25. Jeswiak's writings on sexual codes surrounding HIV have been widely read. He at one point refused to date HIV-positive men, even though he admitted to scientific evidence stating that the virus was not transferable if the viral count was undetectable. However, his views changed after the partner study. It's just such an odd summation of your life. I will a lot. That was, you know, the HIV, the the story that I wrote about that, it affected people. And I think it like hurt some people who had HIV. And I wrote from a very negative centric standpoint to say like, I, here's how I'm understanding HIV after living in a world where nobody knew what it was. And then it was a certain death sentence. And now depending on your access, it's a completely manageable illness. But I was, I'm, I'm actually very glad that the entire point of the narrative is there because I would hate to be known in 2020 as the guy who doesn't sleep with HIV positive guys. And in fact, I will gladly always go to bat for HIV positive guys because so few people do. When you first wrote that piece back in the day and had what at the time was deemed a very controversial opinion, and this was before Twitter and and sort of ways in which people could collectively uh, voice their outrage, what sort of private responses were you receiving from people? Uh, I, I had, there was like one guy that was really upset that wrote me on Grinder about it. That was like, this is like what I go through. This is how I feel. I feel like, you know, nobody wants to have sex with me as a result of this. And I, I wasn't probably as kind as I should have been. I, I like mellowed out a lot. I'm just not nearly as defensive. Like, especially if, if it's some opinion and you have a problem with my opinion. Okay, whatever. I'm not God. Sure. I'm just some asshole with an opinion. Disagree all you want. I think people are sometimes, I think they like go too hard sometimes. And I'm just like, you, the, the, the punishment does not fit the crime here. Like, how could I have upset you so much that yeah. you want me to die? That you want my existence to cease because I wrote that I don't like the new Madonna album. Are you kidding me? <laughs> you know, like what? What is that? But um, so it was like, it was that. But also Twitter, it wasn't what it is now, but it was still a thing and like, there was a period of time where I was publishing regularly, you know, a piece about my sex life or whatever, and people get so upset about it. And I was just like, I don't, I'm not advocating a way of life at all. Like, if anything, I would write about something you shouldn't do, because I think that's way more interesting than being like, mm, look at my breezy gay life just doing the thing. No, look at yeah. me, like, make a fucking fool of myself and not understand these mores in this culture that is ostensibly mine that I feel so boxed out from so much of the time. I think that is interesting. Feel free to disagree. And certainly you can hate the writing, like the actual prose, fair enough. That's aesthetics, I totally understand that. But the degree to which it seemed to get under people's skin, I still haven't wrapped my head around. I don't know. I don't know what that is. And interestingly too, is how you speak about how malleable you were to forming a new opinion, you know what I mean? And so I think a lot of times with that feedback with people, it's like they don't give you the opportunity to evolve in your own mindset, just as they might as well. There's this idea of you said this, so you feel this way and you are bad. It's like, well, I felt this at this time and tomorrow I might feel completely differently. Totally, 10 years ago, 20 years ago, I mean, you're a different person. Hopefully you're changing over time. So I have a kind of a problem when people like trot out old tweets, not of mine really, uh, but like in general, this and, and some look, some of these ideas that that are contained in these old tweets are cancerous. They're they're disgusting. It's like, OK, th- there is a certain thing where it's like if you are a good person, maybe you should have like literally never said that. And now, you know, now I'm watching you because you said fucked yeah. up shit before. But just as often, if not more, it was some stupid shit that someone was just firing off when they were a child. Yes. So, yeah, there's also this spectrum of like there's a difference between like an old tweet that's like, all faggots should die. And an old tweet that's like, I love Bernie. And then like, now they're like liking Warren. Right. So keeping things on the topic of sex, um, 
So much of what I want to talk to you about today is, as I said, revisiting old pieces of yours. My original entry point to your writing, and I remember vividly reading this, uh, was your Gawker piece in 2013 about attending the Black Party. And I remember exchanging an email with you. Like, I remember that exchange. I can say when I met you. Yeah. You know? And I, and I was working for the Saint at Large, which was the production company right. behind the Black Party at yeah. the time. So I, too, was having a similar experience of being exposed to this world. So I think reading your piece, I think part of it for me was the prose of how you write. And then I think the other part of it was feeling very connected to the words of the piece. So basically this piece is centered around your reluctance to attend the Black Party, which is this sort of debaucherous nightlife event that takes place in New York City annually. Yeah, um, spring equinox, kind yeah, of bacchanalia. And, and for people that know nothing about it, it's kind of circuit party-esque in terms of Pretty much anything goes at a party like this. Yeah. There's heavy drug use and there's a lot of- Allegedly. Allegedly. <laughs> and a lot of sex acts going on throughout the the venue. Yes. Um, so you write in this piece and this piece really chronicles your experience attending the first, for the first time. You finally meet a guy at the party and you decide to bring him home. And I'm wondering if you'd read the last three paragraphs for us of the piece. This is low key torture to make me do this. <laughs> Ugh. God, I'm like, uh, I wrote this when I was younger, so. Oh, I can't, oh, God. This is the real party, I told him at one point. Everything that the Black Party purports to offer, all that sexual abandon and freedom I'm getting from you. In the past 12 hours, I hadn't so deeply felt the symbiosis of inspiration and exploration that I had while naked with this guy in my white sheets. I think you need to explain that to me after I've rested and gotten some of my brain back, he said. I came, he came, and he went to sleep around 11.30 a.m. At 3 p.m., I woke up fully alert. I closed my eyes a few times, but was conscious for the next hour, spooning F while he remained asleep. His once glistening muscles now sparkled like sand in the sun pouring through my curtainless windows. Yikes. Yikes. I mean, it's like, you know, I could do better today, but it's not as bad as I thought it was going to be, actually. It's like a little trite, you know? I don't find it to be trite. It's, it's pretty trite, but it's fine. I, I'm I'm okay with having put that in the world, so, actually. I guess I'm, my question I'm, is, if that's trite, though, it's like, I guess for me, it's so rare that I read something so that is whatever the word you're, you're using, trite. But like earnest. Or, yeah. yeah. And there's something I think, I don't know, re again, really connected with me. I remember reading this in, in my early 20s and being both shocked and excited to read someone writing about with such honesty about sexual abandon and also like sort of threading the needle on their own thoughts around it yeah. in real time, yeah. you know? So what was it like exposing your sex life in such a way? I don't know. I mean, like I had an editor at the time that just really actually got off on humiliating people. So he um, really encouraged me to do this, I think partly because of that sort of exercise, but very early into it, it was like, well, uh, you know, as honest as people are, they're still not 100% honest. So like, what can I do? Like, how honest can I be to the point of like really exposing myself, making it so that like, I, I cannot think of my family when I write about sex, I have to pretend that like they're dead, that everybody's dead and nobody will ever encounter the, I mean, thousands of words at this point about like, like in giving blowjobs and here's what it's like to douche and like all this stuff. God, it's so embarrassing that that's out there for my family, but I just have to push forward. So it was like that. And then, and then, you know, thank you for saying what you did. And I kind of felt that way too. And when people would get so mean or up in arms, it was like, well, you know, at least I'm fucking doing something that people aren't. Yeah. You know, at least it's like different, you know? Yes. In 2017, you wrote a piece for Fader titled what watching other people have sex taught me about myself. I'm going to spare you from reading it, but I'm just going to read a, a little chunk. God, um, you're killing me. <laughs> it's the last one, I promise. Uh, you write, quote, in your daily life, you can choose where to train your gaze and thoughts, and your brain never has to so much as graze scenes you aren't into. At a sex party, the good times other people are having is thrust in your face. Watching guys flirt more heartily than they would at a non-sex club, seeing them start to play with each other, and hearing intermittent pounding coming from those booths made me feel like a feral cat watching his domesticated counterpart huddled up in a human's lap. Who were these people? More to the point, who was I? 
Yeah. This quote epitomizes your work so much to me and you as a person in that ability to mine something deeper out of an experience that for other people might just be so fleeting. Yes, I think less charitable interpretation is that I overthink things. Were you always this way? Certainly my internal monologue has always been like, blah, 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 you know? So, yes. And, you know, that that piece that you just referenced is an offshoot from the Black Party thing where I started, like, looking into sex parties. So it's like, I just don't like public sex is the thing. And, like, there are so many little things that come up that are this little etiquette things. All right. At a sex party such as that which I described, you'll have a range of guys. And if I'm there, and I have played at these parties, I've never come, but I've played at them. And if I'm there, two hot guys are there and we're like fooling around and making out and sucking each other's dicks. But then the third guy comes up and I'm not into that guy. But I feel like a dickhead being like, well, I'm into you and you and not you go over there. You know, it become at a certain point, you kind of have, you're being an asshole if you like don't consent to like sex with somebody that you're not attracted to in a way, at least feels awkward. I don't want to have to go through all this in my head while I'm having sex, yeah. you know? Forget it. Yeah. So to me, like beyond everything, it's kind of like a logistical thing. But also, I like to be comfortable, you know? I like a bed. I, I don't want to be, why, why am I going to be standing up having sex? Let's lay in bed. J. Brian Lauder once wrote of you, Rich's ability to find humor and beauty in the strangest or most mundane of assignments has always impressed me. <laughs> I think of his as a crucial voice in the LGBTQ conversation, one with which I've often agreed and just as often argued, uh, which sort of leads me back to the original point we were talking about and how fearless you are about writing about things that might not be the popular opinion of the time. Yes. So what kind of pushback did you receive both then and now from people when they didn't agree? How much of it was, I don't agree, and how much of it was, die, bitch? I, I, the people have definitely thought of various ways in which I should die. So it was at a Horse Me Disco, and it was years ago because it was at Cielo, and I don't think it's been at Cielo for like three to five years or something like that. Yeah. And an ostensible friend, somebody that I would, let's say like a, an associate, was telling me how he, uh, in response to the Black Party piece, somebody on this group text, because I had made a joke about hepatitis because there was a hepatitis outbreak and there was condensation I saw in the balcony. It was like sweat coming off of men's bodies and then coming back down. And I was like, oh, there's a hepatitis outbreak. That's, you know, whatever. And then somebody in this group text this guy tells me is, uh, says that he wishes that I would get hep hepatitis and die. Now, fine, whatever. I mean, he, he maybe he meant it, maybe he was kidding, whatever. But the, the, the huge injustice is that this person felt the need to repeat this. You know, I mean, it's a total Real Housewives, like, reality TV shit. You're not my friend telling me that. You're worse than he is. You brought that. I, I could have lived my life just fine without that information. And it stayed with me. And the worst thing about it is that I made out with him after that. I didn't end up hooking up with him, though. That I, I had my senses drew enough. Line. I drew the line. I went home, he had sent me a provocative picture. I didn't respond to it because I was already ashamed with myself. But also also keep in mind too, that I only hear what gets put in front of me. Yeah. I don't go reading, I don't, I mean, I haven't read comments in over a decade. I don't do that. I just avoid it. I, I, I don't like that at all. And as long as I'm getting paid and keep getting hired to do things, I'm totally fine. I don't, I actually don't really profit from feedback at all. I think if it's negative, I have the kind of personality that'll just stay with me for so long and it hurts my feelings. And then I feel like, well, I've said so much. I talk shit all the time. I have yeah. no right to be upset about this. You have to be able to take in if you dish out, you know? I don't think that I cross certain lines and I'm as cruel as some people have been to me, but I think also people aren't elegant. So like they, you know, they want to clap back or they want to respond and they end up like sounding really brutish because not everybody's a writer. Um, but also positive feedback sucks too, because then you just rest on your laurels and you think you're so fucking great and you can't grow from there. Uh, I, I had a really easy time the first like 10 years or so I was writing for the internet. So much praise. You know, and this is just from writing a blog, but that led me nowhere. It's not like you have to actually do the work. And if you're sitting around reading comments, you're not doing the work. Yeah. So, you know, what makes me grow is is challenging myself in the stories that I choose. There is something to be said, though, about like, you know, in the beginning, especially like harboring that audience of people that are really supportive. I find that the 
bigger the outlet that I write for and the wider net cast of like who can read it, the more opportunity there is for misinterpretation. Oh, as opposed 100%. to when it's someone who like is coming to you for your POV. Right. For instance, your hepatitis joke, it's like there's a huge faction of people that will find that funny. Yes. And then there are people who, and like, there are people really that want, and you sort of have like, to contend. How dare you? Yeah. Yeah. Well, uh, I mean, I what I have to believe is anything worth saying is going to piss some people off. Right. Being divisive is the best way to be, in my opinion, because. Everybody can see people who just pander, who yeah. just who understand the script and then just reiterate it. And yeah. they build a career from this. And it's like, you're wasting space. Telling people what they know, what they think they know, it's useless to me. Especially, I mean, tell, tell me what I think I know with some data. Yeah. Give me, give me another voice in there or something. You're writing opinion pieces and you're just saying what the woke Twitter position is. Boring. I had this situation recently where Matt Bomer was in my DMs yeah. because I posted on my story something as a joke, a picture of him, and I was like, who has the tea on who does Matt Bomer's fillers? Right, right, right. Yes. And I just yeah, was yeah, like, I remember that. Yeah. I didn't think anything of it. It's <laughs> a joke. To it? And he responded in my DM very angrily and, and accusing me of spreading false rumors about him. And in that moment, it kind of goes back to what you were talking about. Like, who told, who like messaged the person being like, this is Rich who made the, the hepatitis joke. Right. It's sort of like some one of my friends yeah. must have messaged Matt Bomer. Right. And it's like, that post wasn't intended to be seen by Matt Bomer. Right. Part of me is like, I shouldn't have posted it. Right. Because you don't want to hurt somebody's feelings. I don't. Yeah. And as I explained to it. Matt Bomer in the DMs, <laughs> I was like, I, I tried to explain the fact that this literally is a compliment. Ultimately, yeah, yeah, it's, yeah. it's literally yeah, me saying, you're so good looking. Right. I want whoever yeah. helped make you that good looking. Yeah, whatever like, he's having, I'll have. Yeah. I'll but, have what he's having. Exactly. But when someone like a Matt Bomer looks really, his skin looks really, really good. Yeah, too I'm good. Gonna, yeah, too good. Maybe <laughs> I'm going to make good. a comment about it. And I really wish people would sort of understand that when it comes to, especially criticizing people's looks, it's like, look at whose looks are being criticized right. and, and sort of how much space there's been given to sort of praising this person. Exactly. The good comes with the bad. And and that's what, you know, and, and that's what I have to tell myself as well, that you like put yourself out there and you're going to hear stuff yeah. from people, you know? Yeah. And the best thing you can do is to train your eyes so that you don't. Yeah. Avoid comment sections. Don't get into it with people, you know? This seamlessly leads into my next question. Great. What are your thoughts on things like gay Twitter and watching gays sort of go after each other for just the most seemingly inconsequential things? This sort of desire to fight with one another. I think it's like a symptom of the, like liberal society in a more larger sense. You know, I'm not conservative. I think that what Republicans stand for is mostly evil. Uh, I mean, just really just burning our planet to the ground. But I am a little bit jealous of their ability to present a unified front and to be like, this is our thing. Whereas liberals are just, it's so messy, just constantly piling on. And, you know, you didn't say that. And here's the better way to say that. And blah, 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 blah. And like a true lack of good faith. I'm going to look at what you said in the worst possible scenario of what you could have meant. And it's just, it's so petty. It's exhausting to me. But what keeps me away from that is I just don't care most of the time. Whenever anybody gets mad about somebody with abs saying I'm thick or whatever, who cares? They're stupid. Sure, you got it. They're dumb. They said something dumb and they're probably like really sad or or really desperate for attention right at this moment. And now they've gotten some weird version of what they wanted and they probably feel worse about it now. I mean, whatever. People say dumb stuff all the time. That's usually what it comes down to, right? Yeah. I mean, did anybody like ever affect positive change via these call-outs and drags? Has that ever happened? If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you 
you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Some conversations are way more complex than what Twitter allows. Mm. Uh, even, you know, you could do a thread, whatever. But but still, I mean, the, the entire point is to be glib and succinct. And there are some things that are that just require more than that. So I think that you get a total distortion. And I think if you, you know, you see things play out on Twitter, you see movies that that clearly are pandering, that are purporting to uphold sort of these Twitter, woke Twitter values that nobody wants to see. They suck. That yeah. Black Christmas remake, that it was so... Uh. Uh. Well, also, did you see, you ever see the original Black yes, Christmas? Yes, of course. Which of- is actually like so woke for a movie. And that's about like how women's reactions differ to this existential threat of sexual violence. It's actually like a really like subtle exploration of the patriarchy you didn't need to wokeify that. Yeah. That was woke. It makes me think about the remake of Halloween. Yeah. And Jamie Lee Curtis was uh, trotted well, out on places like The View, and she was talking well, about the sequel. Yeah, it sorry. has the same. It has the same title, but we're not talking about the Rob Zombie remake. No, we're talking about me. the most recent. Yes, yes, the most recent. And she's coming out and she's saying, you know, this is a movie about trauma. <sighs> Come on, and all of this stuff. And, and, and she's break. on the View, and so all of the the View audience yeah. is thinking, oh. oh, like I don't like horror movies, but but this isn't a trauma. horror movie. It's trauma. I mean, uh, Scream Three was about Sydney's trauma. Yeah, Nancy from Nightmare on Elm Street. You know what she did with her drama? She became a doctor and worked with kids. We've been talking about trauma. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. We the horror movies have gone there. Yeah. And but the only difference now is that you have to present yourself as this bastion of virtue in yeah. order to like have your art matter. Some people think, but mm-hmm. it's like I liked that Halloween. Okay, the two and a half stars, right? Yeah. But the reason I liked it wasn't because it was about trauma or anything. it was because it was another shitty Halloween movie, and I like seeing shitty Halloween movies. Totally. Give me like just pump out the sequels. You know, that's that's great. Yeah. It doesn't have to be anything more than that. Yeah. I'd also love to see Josh Hartnett return to the the totally. Um, Although I guess um, Halloween H two O is no, no longer part of the ti- yes, it's not part of the timeline because yeah. Halloween is like yeah. a gnarled sort of tree yeah. in terms of the timelines and yeah. how they intersect and cross each other out. God bless. Um, we're gonna take a break. We'll be right back. If you enjoyed what you just heard, I have some good news for you. There are extended interviews with our talent available on our Patreon at patreon.com backslash shutupevan. For those of you that aren't familiar with Patreon, it is a way for myself, my producer Alden, to make a little bit of coin off of this podcast. That support will allow us to continue to make more episodes. So if you liked what you heard and want to support what we're doing and the continued effort to keep doing it, please consider subscribing to our Patreon today. We're back with Rich Jeswiak. So Gawker shut down in 2016. Uh, We could do a deep dive on the show about how and why, but that's a podcast for a different day. Uh, But in your goodbye letter, you wrote this. Oh, sorry, I am going to quote you one last time. But this is more like factual information. Uh, There have been several times that I've been at a Gawker party at Nick Denton's apartment, and I've looked around and thought, anyone that I could possibly talk to right now is utterly crazy. And they were, for any number of reasons, because they were eccentric, because they were fucked up, because they were geniuses, because they were actually disordered, because they were John Mayer. (laughs) Working at Gawker was somewhere in between doing time in an asylum and worshipping in a cult. So many times it struck me that this place simply shouldn't exist. And yet it did. Until it didn't. I can't say I appreciated every second of it, but I did appreciate the vast majority of those seconds. If nothing else, it was an honor to see the narrative being written up close for as long as I did. 
really powerful. Thank you. With a few years of distance now from it all, yeah. how do you look back at that chapter? The sheer volume that I felt inclined to write, and I was often told to write less, you know, meant that like there was sloppiness, there were bad takes, there was stuff I didn't think out, there was stuff that needed to be researched better, there was stuff that I needed to consider another perspective on. So personally speaking, pretty messy. I mean, there's stuff that I liked. Yeah, and no matter what, I got D Barnes to talk. And that is just I, I could die. And that was great. That whole experience. She trends on Twitter. The whole thing was just like beautiful. Can you briefly contextualize what that was? So D Barnes is a journalist from the 90s. She had a show called Pump It Up. It was like the first nationally syndicated hip hop show. And she would just interview rappers. They play videos, etc. She was beat up by Dr. Dre in like 92 or something like that. Straight out Compton comes out. It very much glorifies NWA, uh, kind of glosses over a lot of stuff, unsurprisingly glosses over D. So I see it early. I start reaching out to D. She's very reluctant to talk. She decides to review the movie. She gives us a review and it's like, D, we need more. So I get on the phone with her and she gives me kind of like an oral history thing that we then work on together, grafting that onto her review, et cetera. And it comes out and people had been talking up until that. What What is D Barnes going to say? Like, when is D Barnes going to talk? And she talked and it was huge. Two million people read it. It really showed her perspective in a very sort of clear headed, eloquent way. And it was just like the highlight of my career to have any part in facilitating that. That was amazing. So that's to say I wrote junk <laughs> that I would not be at all disappointed if it were wiped from the internet forever. But it also gave me the freedom, you know, to write stuff that I'm proud of. And and the freedom to be dumb and bad, you yeah. know, is, I mean, you hope for that your editor will save you. But when they don't, at least, like, there is some kind of, like, willingness to dive headfirst into something as opposed Absolutely. to tiptoeing around it. And that ethos I've retained while being more careful and sort of intentional in my journalistic practices. But I will say, too, that, like, the bigger picture is that there was really no replacement for Gawker and it's harder and harder to get certain stories written that Gawker would have written. And I see more and more sites pandering to celebrities. I mean, you can't change your story because you said something about a celebrity and the celebrity didn't like it and said that on Twitter. You know, that they don't that doesn't get a correction. Yeah. You know? And yeah. it gets a correction in today's day and age. Yeah. Uh, I mean, what is the point? Widening the lens a little bit, you know, when you look back at this story holistically, there is this gay millionaire. Right. Is he a billionaire? He's a billionaire. Okay. There's this Peter Thiel. There's this gay billionaire, Peter Thiel, who ultimately is the man who you can point to and yeah. say, did this thing. Yes. Um, not only put all these people out of work, but ended something that as you just articulated, there was no replacement for. Right. So when you look back at that and look at this man and, and sort of his actions and how one person can so greatly affect the media industry, yeah, does that scare you? Yes, I find it terrifying. I think extreme wealth is a cancer on society. I think that there should be a wealth cap. I don't think you should be able to have more than $500 million to your name. I, I think you don't need anything more than that. It's ridiculous. So yes, I think it's terrifying that someone with extreme wealth can come and interfere with the press the way that he did. And his story, Peter Thiel had a vendetta because he was outed by Gawker. And I don't really understand what happened between then, which was about like 2008, to him speaking at the RNC on a national stage saying- I am proud to be gay. I am proud to be a Republican, but most of all, I am proud to be an American. It's like you had such a problem with people talking about your sexuality, and then, you know, eight years later, you're saying it on a national stage, what intervened? I never heard that story. And I think it was just about power. I think it was like, you can't talk about me, this is my narrative, which, by the way, there is a convincing case to be made for that. But at the same time, facts is facts. And he came out yeah. and you know what? His life wasn't disrupted yeah. at all. Yeah. He's fine. Peter Thiel's a billionaire. So <sighs> yeah, there's a world in which he's like, fuck Gawker, fuck this fucking site and moves on. Yeah. Versus... As opposed to now I must destroy it and, and give us a lot of questions yeah. about how how free the press yeah. actually is. But almost even more scary is less uh, 
that desire that he had and more the ease with which he was able to enact it. I know. It's just interesting because to your point, I think a lot about the fact that there is no Gawker equivalent and I wonder what is lost in all of that. And I think in so many ways, Twitter, especially like threads and, and screenshots and things have become the best sort of version of Gawker that we have, which is yeah. like that ability to see celebrities unhinged or, or you know, the shade room, yeah. I think is not always effective, but I think is, is another example yeah, of sort of that, that that culture. Yeah, just receipts culture. And yeah. There's nothing wrong with receipts. No, no, no. We, we, we love them. Um, I want to touch on stan culture. Okay. You aren't just a Mariah Carey fan. You know, you are a lamb. Right. For you, uh, what does it mean to be a fan of someone in the way that you are? Like, do, do you use the word stan? Well, I mean, I don't stan. I think I think standing requires a sort of unquestioning devotion, and I question everything. So if I write something about Lady Gaga, you know, Lady Gaga has released garbage. She's also released brilliant material. I mean, give me something better than Bad Romance, the entire thing, the video, everything. That moment was just incredible. She was on top of the world. I love that. I will always love her for that. She's amazing. She also sometimes sucks. And so it's like, okay to say that. And, yeah. and for me, the sometimes sucking is the fun part about liking divas. Mariah Carey is completely imperfect as a performer, as a human, as everything. But she's also brilliant in certain ways too. And I like when she's a mess and I like when she's this picture of, of glamour and she nails it, you know? And it actually, because she's kind of messy and might not nail it, that makes it even more exciting. It's like watching sports or something, you know? Is she going to hit the notes? It's it's like a tense experience when she gets on live television. And that is fun for me. And I just don't understand this philosophy that I see in younger people of like, my patron saint is perfect and can't do anything wrong. And I can't exist in a world where somebody does not like them. But just the idea of like, I can't exist alongside of you with your differing opinion is nuts to me. Yeah. The entire fun of life is the variety of opinions, is arguing with people. It's not like blasting that person from the planet. It's dealing with them, whatever, drag me, whatever. But like, really, you want me to, you think I should not eat as a result of my Madam yeah. X opinion? Like you want me to starve? <laughs> I okay. think about uh, a few weeks ago, Joy Behar, who is someone who I fucking love. Yeah, they like had uh, a bisexual woman uh, guest co-hosting that day. Who was it? Do you remember? It was Barry Weiss. Oh. <laughs> so, so, yes. I was just referring to her. Okay, right. Uh, right, right. I'm sorry. Uh, Maybe may do that again and I won't even, <laughs> we don't have to mention But she name. was on and, and she was talking about her bisexuality and Joy's reaction to the idea that someone could be bisexual yeah. <laughs> was so, she was literally, Joy was shocked. I don't know. I'm friends so? with most of my exes. What you about are? You guys? Yes. How many no. are there, Barry? Many. Joy. <laughs> uh, both genders, too. Uh, yeah, no, I'm what friends do you mean? with a lot of them. What do you mean, both genders? She's I'm bisexual. bisexual. Oh, you are. Oh, okay, but how yes. does that work exactly? Oh, oh wait. Joy. We only have three minutes for no, this segment. Wait, you can speed it up. Come Joy. on. How does that work? I'm curious. I think... Have I you never had an experience with a woman? No. Really? Never. They're never in your sex dreams? No. It's just always yeah. Steve? Yeah, it's always a man. All right, so it's you're straight. A, what do you want me to say? I mean, some of us are wired I haven't. I mean, I love women from the waist up, but... It's different. <laughs> it's a really not great moment right. for, for Joy, who I consider my mother. Yeah, yeah. Um, and it's in those moments where uh, she's, I posted the clip on Twitter and then she was getting roasted and someone messaged me and like, why would you put that clip out there um, if Joy doesn't look good? And I was like, because as, as you pointed out, it's like part of my love for Joy is recognizing that she can have really um, deeply out of touch opinion from time to time. And yeah. that's part of what I love about her. And you're not her publicist. No. It's not your job to present her as a perfect person. Right, right. The, this idea that you're somehow doing a celebrity's a grave disservice by but taking their words seriously, by checking them for accountability, for consistency, is just like, come on. Yeah. Like what, like this is, you know that they're all a bunch of scammers. They're pulling one over on us and, and they're making bank doing it. So you can say, like nobody is perfect. Are you kidding me? And what do you, what do you have to do with your life other than complain about things, right. you know? I mean, come on. Give me a break. You have a Twitter and an Instagram, but you're not really a social media presence in the way that other 
journalists are specifically LGBTQ journalists yeah. who often workshop ideas for stories via putting out a hot take or sort of, you know, trying to track a specific beat right. um, on social. Right. But yeah. you've never really relied on that methodology. For instance, you don't promote your own work often, yeah. which I consider for me, like a really fundamental part of how I get my work out there. Yeah. But I also wonder, it's like, I hate the indulgent aspect of it. I hate asking people to click on the link. Yes. And, you know, I do it sometimes. You know, I do feel a certain need to like keep it up a little bit. But in general, I'm just, uh, I could use a little bit more ambition, you know? I'm always like sort of like happy with whatever story I'm writing. And I'm not looking at the bigger picture of things. I'm just not like that. I like the work. I don't like that everything else, you know? When I think about the internet like 10 years ago, you could talk a lot more freely without feeling like people are going to like nitpick every little thing. And it was a lot more fun. Like, what is it like to be upset all the time or to be irritated just like all? And I know what it's like to be irritated all the time. I'm really irritable. But like not about like stupid takes and bad writing. That seems inevitable as the weather. I get accused sometimes by people of like constantly being angry about the gays with the thirst traps right, and everything. Right. And like, I'm not angry about it. It's like I'm being performatively right, angry. Right. So I think that there two exists, I don't want to say necessarily like a spectrum, but there are people who are genuinely outraged. Yes. And then there are people like me who are outraged with a set with a little bit of like a wink in the eye. Yeah. I don't I I do not think of you when I'm thinking of people who get upset. Yeah, because but, but, I think but pe- I read this. Yeah, but people yes. but people do read it as, as genuine and, and you're constantly upset. I also find it very interesting when people come at you as though there's some rule book that they are privy to that you have somehow violated, but it's just their rules. Yeah. So it's like when you when you charge me for not writing this properly according to your standards, it's because I didn't read your mind. And the reason I didn't read your mind is I didn't even know you existed until you bothered me. Like what I failed to do here is write the story that you would have written. Right. But we're two different people. Yeah. So, duh. Of and, course I did. And also, you might not be wrong. I'm not saying your your disagreement is not wrong. There's, yeah. It's valid. It's right. not my argument because yeah. I'm not making your argument. Exactly. But but what I don't like about it is that there's assumption that like I didn't think about right. something. And it's like, you know, I may have thought wrong about it, but I fucking thought about it. Yeah. I always think about it. Yeah. How do you see entertainment journalism evolving with platforms like Instagram, like Twitter, with screenshots, with celebrities evading publicists and responding to things. You know, I just mentioned to you before we started recording, I had reached out to Mark Jacobs people about a story. They were like, oh, we'll try and get you the response. I DM Mark, Mark responds. I don't think he's responding to me thinking I'm a journalist. I think he's responding to a human. Yeah. Just because that's sort of Mark's personality. Right. What do you sort of see this way in which uh, entertainment journalism has shifted as a result of access, but also of celebrities like being able to go on Twitter and enter their name in? I think another part of what you're just talking about is that celebrities can tell their own stories. And so the the need for entertainment journalism per se is lessened because there's no, you know, the journalist is the middleman and these people can like say their things that they want to say. Unfortunately, that middleman often works as a system of checks that gets to sniff out the bullshit that you, you, you know, you could tell me some tweet about how good you are, but if I'm sitting next to you, you could say those words and we could have a conversation about it. And it might come out over the course of it that you're stupid. Yeah. (laughs) That you don't know what you're talking about. Right. But I think that there's probably an equilibrium nonetheless. I think entertainment journalism itself, you know, I read how many, how many cover stories from magazines that get published today with big stars contain nothing like not like you look at the quotes that they used and you're like what quotes did you not use the the shit i read amazes me as somebody who was like 10 years old reading rolling stone and spin and details you know just somebody who like kind of like worships this form to see what's happened and there are people who do it great you know yeah get katie weaver on in, in a room with a celebrity and you'll have great things come out of it that are like light and well-intentioned and insightful. She just has the right sensibility, whatever. Katie's my friend. She's one of my best friends and she can do no wrong if you ask me, but it's, it's rare. But I think what compensates to some degree is what you're talking about is more of the kind of guerrilla journalism is the 
you know, ability to screenshot and share these things and disseminate this information. But you have, in general, a lot of people who don't know how to fact check and really do proper journalism trying to do it. And sometimes they kind of stumble into it. But I think that in some way, I like to believe that there is still a truth that gets reached as much as it would have during, you know, the old mode of you know, the privileged access of a journalist yeah. telling the story of these people. Yeah. I think I think the truth still outs. It just comes out in a different sort of way in, in the age of social media. Yeah, life. there's so much I respect about you. Thank you. The thing about you that has fundamentally changed the, my approach to my work is how research-driven you are. Yeah. Remarkable. I think a lot, of, and I try and always email you when I read pieces of yours that really affect me. And I remember emailing you after reading your Latoya Jackson deep dive. Yeah, it was looking back at her sort of flip flopping around her own history of sexual abuse at the hands of her father, Joe Jackson. Yes. Am I characterizing that correctly? Yes, and just his, it's Joe's abusiveness in general. But then she went on to reveal that she was abused by him, and I just thought it would be interesting because I watched all. I remember all that happening. And everybody always thought Latoya was crazy and ridiculous and just like, you know, stunt queening, which obviously there was a lot of that, no matter what. Yeah. Um, but I just thought it would be interesting to go back and to really like chart it, map it out and understand what had happened. Yeah. And what emerged was a really complex narrative where she was revealing stuff on the tour for the book that wasn't in the book. The story kept growing. Right. And then she comes out with, uh, so that her first book is like 91 Latoya, it's called. And then Starting Over comes out in like 2009, and it refutes the entire first book. And what's so interesting about that piece and so many of your pieces is how much of the work is not in the words themselves on the page, but is in the research that yeah. goes around finding these clips, especially from a time when, you know, clips from Sally, Jesse, Raphael, or just clips that aren't easily accessible. Right. I was working on a piece for Rolling Stone recently, and I thought about you because... When I write about RuPaul in general, I always try and remember what the public perception was of RuPaul before Drag Race, yeah. which went through cycles. Yes. And I found this Washington Post piece, I think it was from 1993. Okay, yeah. It was like a mini- First album. Yeah, yeah. a mini profile of him and calling him the, the world's most famous drag queen in the pages of the Washington Post. Right. And I tried to remember, it's like moments like that, which- aren't on his bio, but are culturally significant moments. Totally, yeah. It was like him, Divine, Sylvester. Yes. You know, that's... And a lot of my effort to do that comes from reading so much of your work. So I wonder when you do these deep dives, can you sort of talk about like the research process from ideating the topic down to collecting all the clips? Well, generally the topic comes from just me wanting to know more and being like, I wonder if there is a story there. I think a very similar piece that I did was I did a history of Ken, the Ken Dolls crotch. And that was just like, why is his crotch like that? And so I just started Googling. And then I started, and then I, over the course of this of this research, found that the man that inspired Ken had this like secret gay life. He died of AIDS. His doctor told all to a journalist, to a writer who wrote a book about the handlers who created Barbie and Mattel, uh, just like a wild sort of story. So sometimes it just kind of like unfurls in front of you and you're like, I'm so glad I had this idea. But I just, you know, Nexus is a really good tool. You know, it's it's not really easy to get a lot of old clips from things like old magazines, whatever. I go to the library quite a bit too. And I will do a YouTube sweep, look for everything I can. But that is the fun thing because like I just have this obsessive sort of quality to me. So I find a thing and I just like zero in on it. And that's what I'm doing for the time. And I just become sort of obsessed with it to the point where I can't do anything but get it out of me and do this release that becomes the article, you know? I like that. Last question I want to ask you, we're talking about celebrity journalism. Um, you've profiled some really great people. You also are able to bring out interesting things from people that I find to be uninteresting people. Oh, well, thank you for saying that. Who is someone currently that you really would want to talk to in the sense that you think you could get something from them that hasn't yet been mined? I would love to talk to Quentin Tarantino. I think that it would be very difficult to talk to him. I don't think he takes kindly to any kind of resistance to what he has to say. But I think that he's also a smart person that has made weird decisions that 
I mean, to me, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood was kind of a temper tantrum, I thought. There's a lot of stuff woven in about like how he has treated people and women that is kind of kind of dog whistled. I mean, even the scene with the you've seen the movie, the little the little girl actor when Leonardo DiCaprio is doing the scene and he impromptu throws her across the room and she's like, oh, that's okay, I had arm pads on. I mean, that's the Uma Thurman car accident mm-hmm. thing being referenced. And it's like, what? How petulant are you that you're like, like nobody heard that Uma stuff and was like, oh, he might have a point. It was like, no, you endangered her life for your like movie director high ego thing, you know? And to like reference that in such a callous way, it's like, why why are you being such a little bitch about this, yeah. you know? So I don't know. I, I If he were willing to talk, I guess I would do that. The obvious answer is Mariah Carey, but I don't think I could get anything out of her. When she went back to number one last year, she did a press tour. Entertainment Weekly, Billboard, New York Times, all the time being like, well, this is, you know, I don't really care about chart statistics, whatever. So my friend Joe works at the New York Times, did the story about- Joe Coscarelli? It, Joe, Joe Coscarelli uh, did the story about All I Want For Christmas Is You. And he asked her multiple questions that he noted in the piece she wouldn't answer. Like, let's break down the song. Why is it so great? How does it feel back to be back at number one? And she wouldn't talk about this because clearly there's some sort of a script and she won't deviate from it. So mm. the quotes that she gave during this period are the quotes that she kept giving. And he tried his best to work in new stuff. I just think she is an impossible nut to crack. And um, Andy Cohen sometimes can do it. So he'll get her to say unique things. But in general, she's just like, she's not a great interview. She's mm. not. So I would not say... Mariah Carey. There have been so many people who I've never gotten to talk to that I wish I did that have died. Whitney Houston, Aretha Franklin. And I don't know what Joni's like today, but like that is a conversation I would just kill. I would, uh, I wouldn't kill, but I would maim to speak with Joni Mitchell. That, that would be the best thing I think that could happen in my life. I want to thank you. Thank you. I have to, you know, just once again say I just... You are so formative to my understanding of journalism, of quality work, of being considerate of, and when I say considerate, I mean considerate in the sense that I too have grown so much in my expansive perspectives and my own shitty work that's out there from my past. I now look back on and it's like, gosh, I wish I would have thought more critically or in response to how people respond to this, I would have done something differently. And I feel like that openness and that willingness to inflect upon the past and and bring that into your work. I feel like so few writers today infuse themselves into their work as much as you did and do, and never in a sense that it ever feels egocentric or or you know jerking yourself off. And so I really want to encourage anyone listening to check out your work, obviously your present work. And you might not be enthusiastic as me telling people to dig into your archives, <laughs> but I really do think you are one of the great writers of our time. Well, thank you for saying all of that, Evan. Uh, I very much admire you as well. I think that your mastery of social media and communication is just beyond me. I cannot communicate so modernly. I just can't do it. I don't know where your energy comes from. I just can't even imagine the effort that you put into curating how you see culture and pop culture is really a stream into your brain that you are offering directly to people. And uh, I really appreciate that as well. And uh, thank you for saying all the nice things that you did. Yeah, I always try and check in with myself in those moments when I'm like doing one of those streams and it's like, you know, during an award show or something. And I always say like, does it make, are you happy? Like, is it yeah. making you happy? Yes. And it makes me so happy. Well, that's all you need. Yeah. Anyway. As long as you're having fun. That's what it's all about. Tea. Yeah. I'm Evan Ross Katz. Shut Up Evan is produced and edited by Alden Peters. This podcast is made possible in part by our supporters on Patreon. So we tip our hat to you all. Go to patreon.com backslash shutupevan to get access to bonus content, including extended interviews and bonus clips. And again, from the bottom of my heart, thank you so much for giving a shit about anything that I have to say. 
That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Want to get a chiseled look in the jawline? Sculpt and shape your jawline with added volume from Juvederm Volux XC. Juvederm Volux XC is an injectable gel specifically designed to be robust enough to improve moderate to severe loss of jawline definition. And it is the first and only hyaluronic acid filler approved for the jawline. Add volume to your jawline for a chiseled look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M dot com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com.